Today, we're going to be talking about avoiding personal guarantees in business. And we're going to be talking about avoiding personal guarantees when being an investor in a small business. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Deal Making, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. Hey everyone, Dave Barnett here, glad to be back. And um, this is the channel where we talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses. And today I'm answering a question from Abdullah, who was watching a video that I made called Non-Equity Ownership. And Abdullah left a comment and asked, please make a video on buying a business as a group from an investor perspective, i.e. non-operating partner. Please go over all the variations and how not to be subject to a personal guarantee. Great question. And, and I'm only going to dive partly into this today. But the... the Basically, um, if you are a, you know, an investor in a business, let's first of all, look at big companies, right? Like if you were to buy stock in Coca-Cola or any other big publicly traded business, and then that company went and borrowed money, you would not be asked to sign a personal guarantee on that loan, right? Your liability in the business is limited to the stock that you bought, the investment that you made. But in the world of small business, it's a little bit different because banks know that you know people really do business it's not really you know in the in the large scale it's big corporations like you know publicly traded companies but in the world of small business people do business with people and so if you have three or four investors that put money into a business and one operator uh, there's a very good likelihood that there's some kind of relationship between those investors and that operator that they're not you know, sort of separated by by distance, you know, the, the publicly, the shareholders of a publicly traded company are spread out all over the place. And there are different types of investors, they're individuals, they're, you know, equity funds, they're pension funds, they're all kinds of different players. But in the world of small business, if you find an investor for your business deal, in all likelihood, there's a relationship and a relationship means influence, it means talking about things, it means going beyond um, you know, the relationship that I might have with the phone company if I own some of its shares. Like no one over there is going to take my call uh, and listen to my advice about what they should be doing with next season's, you know, cell phone plans or anything like that, right? So the bankers will actually require that if you own a certain percentage of the stock of one of these small businesses, that you have to become one of the guarantors on the loan. And, and this can vary. And in the United States, for example, the SBA has rules on how much you can own uh, of a small business before you have to you know, put your name onto the loan guarantee, et cetera. And so the, the first big answer to the question, Abdullah, and I, I know you're not going to like this, is one way to make sure you avoid personal guarantees in business is not to borrow any money, right? But then, of course, you don't get the advantages of leverage. You don't get access to that cheaper capital that often comes from institutional financing. So then the next opportunity would be um, keep your ownership stake small. The problem with that is if you have 
you know, a dozen shareholders and one operator, those dozen shareholders have very little influence over that operator, right? Because their individual stakes are so small, it leads to, leads to all kinds of other potential problems. So before I, I leave this idea of, an, uh, of the investor part of your question and, and head full bore into the personal guarantee side, uh, I'll just want to say this. If you're going to be an investor in a small or medium-sized business, I recommend that you read my book, Invest Local, because I describe in that book why it can be very dangerous to be a minority shareholder in a small or medium-sized business. And, and some of the particular pitfalls and reasons why you may not want to do it. With that being said, if you are going to be a shareholder in a small business and there's a primary operator who is also a shareholder, that, that operator usually is a larger shareholder, um, your investment is as much in that person as it is in the business. And this is why banks require big shareholders to be personal guarantors. So that person has to be someone that you know, that you trust, and that has a level of sophistication along with the other shareholders, they also need to be people with a certain level of sophistication to understand the roles and responsibilities of the different people, what is something that they should be doing and what is not something that they should be doing. So over the course of my years, I've had all kinds of stories relayed to me about people who got investors involved in their business, and then the investors kept poking their nose into places where they shouldn't have and became a real nuisance and annoyance and a problem for management because they kept trying to assert influence on the day-to-day -day operations when they really should not have been doing that. So that's that's one problem that can happen amongst investors. And, and then I've also heard from people who've put money into things where the person operating the business was not a very sophisticated person and the communication wasn't there, the reporting wasn't there, the transparency wasn't there. And at the end of the day, the people who made the investments weren't really sure where they stood or what was going on. And in the world of small business, it can be very difficult to assert your rights. I mean, people can say, oh, I'm a shareholder. I have certain rights. You know, legally speaking, attorneys will tell you, yeah, you have these different rights. Try to exercise them, right? Just the cost and the difficulties and the burdens of trying to, you know, dislodge a usually large shareholder manager from their position and then take over the business. Like, I mean, it, the possibilities for just self-destruction are huge, right? So if you're going to get involved as an investor in a small business, you need to really have complete faith in that individual. And you have to have an understanding of who they are and know that they know how to operate the business and that they are committed to their role as management in providing information, transparency, reporting, et cetera, to you as an investor. And you also, I think, have to do due diligence on any other investors that are going to be a part of this uh, arrangement to make sure that you know who those people are and that you can trust them to act appropriately um, over the life of the business that you're getting involved in. Now, let's pivot a little bit to the question of personal guarantees. So I already mentioned that if you want to avoid personal guarantees, you can not borrow money. That's the first one. The second place where you can avoid personal guarantees, and I have personal experience with this, is back when I used to work for American Express, I used to be in the corporate card division, 
And we would do corporate card programs with no personal guarantee for businesses of a certain size. You're talking two plus million in revenue at the time. Things may have changed in the, in the time period that's elapsed, but over two million in revenue and these non-personally guaranteed, you know, credit facilities would be like 25, 30, 50 grand, right? So not a huge amount of capital, not a huge amount of borrowing, right? But they didn't have personal guarantees. Now, beyond that, I got to tell you, Abdullah, you really stumped me because I know people that have multi, multi-million dollar enterprises. And every time they want to go to the bank, they got to put up personal guarantees. So I was thinking to myself, how on earth could someone get around personal guarantee in business? Um, and I was stuck. So I did what, uh, what most people would do in that situation is I turned to Twitter. So let me share my screen here because uh, let's go see what Twitter has to say. So as you can, I don't know if you can see that very well or not, but I will read these out to you, especially for the people listening. I put out this tweet on December 4th. What ways have you tried to avoid a personal guarantee when borrowing money for business? I wanted to, to get the feedback. So one person, uh, Thomas, says, get it over $3 million of EBITDA and be a quote-unquote sponsor. And I think this is a little bit of a, a tongue-in-cheek kind of response. But the gist of it is, is if you have a significantly sized business and $3 million of earnings would probably necessitate $20, $30 million of revenue, right? Um, then banks will start to look beyond you as the individual they will actually start to consider the business to be this real economic entity. And of course, this is why publicly traded companies don't have personal guarantees, right? And so to me, that's not small business, right? So, but thank you for your input. Um, this next one, Ben says, going bigger is the surefire way, but the deals are so good in no man's land for operating businesses anyway. So he's basically saying, get over it. Uh, if you want to find a good deal out there on a business, you're going to have to accept this personal guarantee issue. Um, this uh, Chris Cadwell has a couple of interesting points here. It says, for project finance of a renewable energy project, there are valid tax structuring reasons for banks not to require recourse. I'm not an expert in this domain, um, and so could very well be. So what he's referencing is some kind of regulatory tax issue uh, that actually creates a reason for the bank not to want to do it. So um, these particular types of tiny niche opportunities could exist. And you'd have to really you know, do your homework and understand what's going on. But then in a follow-up um, tweet, he says, number one, you could offer collateral. <sighs> so what's the difference then between offering collateral and a personal guarantee? Well, if you offer a personal guarantee to a bank and then you default on a loan, that just means that the bank can personally sue you for any deficiency. So they take you to court, they sue you, they obtain a judgment, and then they can usually attach the judgment to some kind of asset. So if you owned a house that had significant equity and they secured a judgment against you because of the personal guarantee, then they could apply that judgment to the home and then you wouldn't be able to refinance or sell the home or whatever until you dealt with that with that judgment. If you offered the home as collateral, 
then they don't have to sue you and get the judgment. They just straight to the home equity. They've already got it secured and locked up and they've tied it up so that you can't borrow against that equity in the meantime, between the time you borrowed the money and the time you got into trouble with them, with the default. So in my mind, yeah, you could offer collateral to get around a personal guarantee, but that is just getting in even deeper with them, uh, with the lender, right? You're, you're giving them more direct um, access to, uh, to your arteries. Um, so, but it is a way to avoid a personal guarantee. There's no question. Um, and then uh, the offers number two, negotiate flexible loan terms, such as lower interest rate or longer repayment period. Seek out lenders who specialize in non-recourse loans. Um, as far as lenders that specialize in non-recourse loans, um, the only thing that I might be able to think about when I when this jarred my memory was certain kinds of asset financing, sometimes when you buy an asset. So I remember once when I was had my business brokerage office open, I signed an, uh, a lease, an operating lease for a photocopier printer. It was one of those deals where you pay a monthly fee and then they would supply all the toner and everything. Um, and that did not have a personal guarantee on it. It was just between my company and the and the operator, the the people that sold me the machine or that leased me the machine. Uh, and when I closed that office, I just called them up and I said, uh, "The office is closing. Well, where do you want me to drop off your printer?" And they gave me an address, like and that was it. So um, maybe with certain equipment purchases or leases specifically, leases. Um, what I find is that leasing companies are more open to these kinds of arrangements because they actually hold title to the collateral. Um, they own it, you don't. And so uh, you can usually get more flexible terms in leases. Uh, so that may be one avenue that you could go down. Um, and then um, the, uh, Nervi, Nuvi puts uh, crying, begging, threatening, yelling, bribery, the basics. Uh, are you gonna teach us any better ways? Uh, I've, I've seen people try all of these, but I haven't seen them succeed. So in, um, <laughs> in a video that I made a very long time ago called Mini Storage Mess, I talk about a deal that I had put together between myself and some other investors to build a mini storage unit. And <clears throat> that was the concern from the investors. I had uh, a bunch of people put in money ranging from a low of 2000 to a high of 14000 and I think we raised just under a hundred grand. We bought a piece of land and then we were going to use the balance of the money and the equity in the land as a down payment to borrow money, to build a mini storage unit. And every time I went to any of the banks, they all wanted all the investors to sign joint and severable personal guarantees. What does that mean? It means that Every one of the investors, even the guy putting in $2,000 would have been fully personally liable for the entire amount of the mortgage. And one of the investors who put in the $14,000 was a multimillionaire investor. And um, he was like, if I sign that and we default on this, they're going to ignore all of you guys are just going to sue me, which totally was probably going to be what would happen. Uh, because they would just look at the list of investors and they would go, well, we know he has the money. So they would just sue him, right? So that obviously wasn't going to fly. And what I did is I went around and I finally found someone, uh, someone who had a little bit more autonomy in being able to negotiate the terms of the agreement, which was a credit union. And so I went to the credit union and I said, here's the dilemma. I have these equity investors 
and we need a mortgage to build the, the mini storage unit. Um, but the investors do not want to sign a joint and liable joint and severable personal guarantee on the entire mortgage. And the credit union did something pretty innovative. I thought is they said, well, we still do require personal guarantees, but we will take a personal guarantee limited to the amount of the investment. So under that scenario, the person who invested $2,000 was being asked to sign a $2,000 personal guarantee on the mortgage. And the guy who invested 14,000 was being asked to guarantee a $14,000 security personal guarantee on the mortgage. And so if you think about it logically, it doesn't make sense, right? It, it really doesn't like, but it wasn't a joint and severable personal guarantee on the entire amount. And it was the best thing that we could come up with. So the investors agreed. We went forward. And if you watch that video, you'll find out how the deal ended up turning out in the end. But that was the best I could do. And it was simply because I went to an organization that was smaller and more adaptable, where I could actually create a relationship with the people there, talk with them about the deal, show them just how solid the deal was. And at the end of the day, the reason why they were able to entertain this, and the only reason they were able to do it is because we had such a huge um, equity position that was a very strong balance sheet position. The overall debt to equity ratio was going to be very strong after the building was built. And this is why they, they were willing to do that because they probably realized at the end of the day, Number one, they would probably you know, never have to deal with a default. Number two, if they did, the value in the property would almost certainly be in excess of what the outstanding loan balance would have been at that time. And so to the point that Chris made about collateral, um, just the value in that deal, the collateral that would be created through the, the loan being used to build the, the structure um, would have been really you know, solid for them. Anyway, um, one of the things that wasn't mentioned here, of course, is if you had, um, you know, a cash value whole life insurance policy like the kind put together by Mark Willis over at uh, Lake Growth Financial Services, um, that's also an option. So under these programs, you invest money, you, you, you pay a premium, which is in excess of the amount required for the life insurance death penalty and, and death, um, death benefit, sorry. Um, and it builds cash value within the plan and you can borrow against that and they never say no because they have to pay the money out to you eventually one day anyway. Um, you're still risking though. It's, it's still really offering collateral because you're borrowing against money that will eventually have to be paid to you or your, or your heirs eventually anyway. But if you head over to newbankingsolution.com, um, Mark and I have actually done a, a, like an hour long webinar where we explain that product and how it works. And you can see all the other different times I had him on the channel here talking about it. I think there were four or five videos that we'd recorded over the course of several years. I have one of these policies myself. So that's why uh, I agreed to allow Mark to sponsor the channel is because I know that this is a quality solid product that gives you, at the end of the day, it just gives you options, right? So over the course of time, if you're building up these different assets, um, you know, to the point that Chris made about offering collateral, um, as you become wealthier and wealthier and you have more and more assets, um, if you want to invest in a certain deal and you're you know, being asked to put up a quarter million dollars or something and you have a net worth in the millions of dollars, an over 
an overarching blank, uh, blanket personal guarantee may not be something you want to do because um, it could confuse and conflict with all kinds of other business activities that you're that you're involved with. But to just say to that lender, I'll put this up as collateral. It could make make a lot of sense in that scenario. I was talking with um, one of the guys over the holiday chat specials who was looking at buying a business and his net worth was in excess of the value of the loan he wanted to take to buy the business. In fact, his home equity alone was more than the value of the loan he wanted to take to buy the business at hand. And so he was asking about SBA financing. And I said, well, if you take an SBA loan, they're going to want to put a lien on your home as, to collateralize the loan. And if, if you know, there's more home equity than the loan that you're taking, and the SBA is going to have like all these lender fees, origination fees, you know, the insurance fee, all that other stuff that goes in there. Plus it's at a higher interest rate than a HELOC. And I said, maybe it would just make more sense for you to do a home equity line of credit and just borrow the money against your house and buy the business with it. Uh, and then it won't involve all of these other assets that you have. So, um, yeah, I hope I hope that I I squeezed everything I could out of that topic. Um, and um, if if you're looking at buying a business, then I would highly recommend that you head over to businessbuyeradvantage.com, where you can watch a short video that explains how I work with people. I talk about my online course, I talk about the group coaching program, and I talk about the different consulting services that I offer to help people through the process of buying a business. And all that stuff's over at businessbuyeradvantage.com. And with that, we'll see you later. We'll talk to you next time. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? Easy. Head over to my blog site at davidcbarnett.com. You'll find hundreds of articles and videos all for free. You'll find links to my books and online courses, and you can sign up for my email list and get emails covering topics that interest you and be notified of new videos.